In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There is something undeniably and uniquely awkward about this stage, this particular time of the summer, uh, of what's being called reopening. It has to do with this word condemnation. Condemnation. University of Pennsylvania psychologist Tess Wilkinson Ryan wrote this week in The Atlantic saying that with more freedom of movement, Americans also have more opportunities to make judgments of others, others who always seem to be doing it wrong. How can people be sitting in, in groups chatting at an outdoor bar? Who would take their kid to swim in a public pool? Can you believe he made his three-year-old wear a mask? Wilkinson Ryan described it as a psychological morass. And I think uh, the, the awkwardness here cannot be uh, overstated, where we are sizing up even good friends as to what their personal attitude towards uh, physical engagements are. Or maybe you're a person that, that finds yourself watching videos of others acting particularly egregious in one direction or the other, and then you, you condemn them, both for their carelessness or for their overzealousness, the, the, the Karens of the world. That person is so overcautious, or that person is so undercautious. The truth is, this kind of um, spectatorship, it feels good. It feels good. What feels less good is when we are condemned in return. I mean, as people sort of reemerge into public life, the, there, there's a sense of, well, well, have you made the most of your quarantine time? You know, uh, those kids down the street, they learned a new language, and all my kids learned was, you know, the, every word to back to the future. Everyone else lost weight during quarantine. Why not, why not you? You know, that couple over there, they redid their mudroom, and you just survived. But this applies to more than just the pandemic. Think about our ongoing discussion on race, this important, urgent, um, and in many ways very painful process of talking about inequalities and the weight that populations have, have, have taken on. In my private conversations with people around this topic, the one of the refrains I hear is, well, I just don't want to say the wrong thing. I'm so afraid of talking about it because I don't want to say the wrong thing. The Onion spoofed this memorably with a fake headline recently. White ally willing to do whatever it takes to make sure people won't be mad at him. Have I said enough? Have I said too much? When, when it comes to the headlines, to the protests, to, uh, I wish I had a nickel for every time I've heard that phrase, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. You add our political divisions and acrimony on top of this already very pressured environment and the lack of physical touch, and what you have is a widespread sense of swirling condemnation. It's almost as, it's as thick as the humidity in Virginia. By condemnation, usually that's sort of, we think of it as in terms of external condemnation of a criminal. You are condemned to life in prison. 
But the condemnation here I'm talking about is less dramatic and it's more commonplace. The sense that you are at fault, that you are to blame, that you are not good enough. And it can be a message where condemnation can be contained in a tone of voice or the raise of an eyebrow. Of course, we don't need outside voices. We don't need externalities. We condemn ourselves. And some people call this a conscience. But uh, there is always this yawning gap that Josh Bascom talked about last week between who we would like to be or who we know we should be and who we actually are. It's not neutral. It's painful. It's heavy. It hurts. It alienates. The way that our Book of Common Prayer puts it is that we have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. Well, what is the fruit of all this condemnation? Well, I'm, from my vantage point, uh, one of the things I'm seeing is the fruit is, is relational uh, alienation from loved ones. How many couples have I heard who are, who are contemplating separation or divorce? And the, the, there's always some variation of the, the refrain, I feel like I can't do anything right, that I've been pronounced guilty. Or she feels like she can't say anything right. This mutual exchange of condemnation results in impasse, and heartache. Now, maybe, maybe that sense of condemnation is, is it, you think that that's the voice of God, that you grew up in a church where that was commonplace. Hopefully not. But maybe you heard it from one of your parents growing up. There's a, there was a great episode of the radio show, This American Life, about a young woman named Rebecca whose mother died when she was 16. And she, she, her mother was clearly very thoughtful, and she left behind 13 letters to be opened on Rebecca's birthday for the next 13 years. And the letters were these thoughtful missives that were sort of a mix of pep talks and moral instruction and autobiography. But what's interesting is that these letters start out as a mode, a vehicle of encouragement and comfort, and they soon turn into something else. All of a sudden, she's 25, and she's reading a, a, a letter with her mother asking her, are you contemplating a dissertation? You know, she starts to, 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 to push herself to meet these expectations, and one of her mother's dominant themes is that she maintain a strong uh, religious faith. She was a Mormon. Rebecca was to grow up to be a Mormon woman, and by the time, you, you can fill in the blanks, by the time she was a senior in college, she was moving away from the church. And so when she would open these letters, she'd start to feel angry. It would ruin her day because she was so condemned by her mother's, her dear mother's expectations. Do I have to open up this one this year? She said, I felt guilty. If I didn't open it up, I was disappointing her, and if I did open up, I was, uh, I was disappointing her. It's a pretty hard thing for your birthday to be celebrated this way, or have a, a, another bomb lobbed into your life from beyond the grave. She was damned if she did and damned if she didn't. For many of us then, the question becomes not if we'll disappoint, uh, but who will disappoint. 
Of course, we cling to condemnation, even though we see its fruit, because we want, we see it as a mode of changing a person or a tool to get them to conform. Maybe if we just turn up the volume on the judgments and the shame and the guilt, well, then finally, such and such will give way and I will get what I want or uh, that person will change. And this is the prevailing narrative in our culture. The voices in our discourse are all voices of, um, of condemnation. But what Paul tells us in Romans, he says that it doesn't work. He says that the law, which is condemnation, is weakened by the flesh. And so it cannot deliver us from sin and death. In fact, condemnation as a force is the equivalent of tossing a rock to a drowning person. One of our heroes here, Robert Capon, said so beautifully, but yet so controversially, uh, well, he asked, he said, what has really made a mess of the world? Is it grace, forgiveness, Turn the other cheek? Or is it guilt, punishment, vengeance, and retribution? Well, we are very familiar with the latter, and we pine for the former. Well, this morning our pining has an answer, because this morning we hear something different, something definitive. One of Paul's most definitive statements comes in that eighth chapter of Romans when he says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My friends, this is the thing we've all been missing. And it is what we find when we looked to Jesus Christ, the one person in the world who is not condemning you, the one person who would have every reason to do so, but who would rather be condemned himself than abandon you to your own devices. This Jesus who would rather die than judge you for not being more impressive. You see, the Christian solution to the swirling morass of condemnation is not a higher or purer form of the same, but it's absence. More than that, it's the presence of love. Let me give you an illustration, then I'm finished. My friend Rod Rosenblatt, the theologian, he tells the story of how when he was 16 years old, his father lovingly gave him a car. He was the envy of all of his friends, and so they, he became the center of social life. And then one evening, he and his friends had been drinking. They were 16, and he wrecked the car that his father had bought him. In fact, they were all drunk after the accident, Rod called his dad, and the first thing his dad asked him was, are you all right? Rod assured him that he was fine, and then he confessed that he was drunk and naturally terrified of how his father or any father, any parent might respond. Well, later that night, after he made it home, he wept and wept in his father's study. He was embarrassed. He was ashamed. He was guilty. His father sat silently and allowed his son to get it all out, to feel the remorse and the guilt, and to process it emotionally. And at the end of the ordeal, he finally spoke, and when he did, it was a single question. He said, Rod, how about tomorrow we go and get you a new car? Rod now says, 
and he's pushing 80. And he became a Christian in that moment. God's grace became real to him in that instant, in that blinding sort of road to Damascus moment of forgiveness and mercy. And it planted the seed that produced a hundredfold that we hear about in the parable of the sower, the seed of a lifetime of ministry and other-centered giving and spreading of the grace of God. Indeed, it gave him the freedom to own up to his own shortcomings with hope rather than despair. Well, the point here this morning, as you negotiate the swirling morass of condemnation that is both given and received, both received and given, is to tell you simply that on account of Christ, God has not condemned you. On account of Christ, God does not condemn you. And on account of Christ, God will not condemn you. The rest, as they say, is just noise. So how about tomorrow we go and get you a new car? Amen.